0: Hello, and welcome to Health News with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. On today's episode, I sit down with my guest, Erin Waters. Erin is a Kaiser Permanente community health navigator in our Northwest Region Gender Pathways Clinic. In this role, Erin is a powerful advocate for the LGBTQ community. Her deep commitment and persistence aim to help transform health systems to be more inclusive and gender affirming for trans and non-binary people. I'm excited to share this episode with all of you during Pride Month. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Would you just start by introducing yourself a little bit for the audience?
1: So my name is Aaron Waters. I use she/her pronouns. I am currently a equity, inclusion, and diversity consultant for Kaiser Permanente in the Northwest region. I started off at Kaiser as a community health navigator, so it's a lot like a community health worker in a sense. So when patients call and they're struggling with things related to employment housing security, food security. We have a group of individuals who specifically work with those patients to help them get stable through community resources. And my position was actually started in our Gender Pathways Clinic, supporting our trans and gender non-binary patients and helping support that clinic, becoming very, very robust.
0: Awesome. It sounds like a very interesting job to have, actually.
1: Yeah. Most days, it it was very, very interesting. It was very fulfilling in the sense that every day, I got to work with members of my own community and really help them engage with resources that were affirming and positive and understood who they were, simply because a resource exists, there's no guarantee that they're actually going to be supportive of the trans community. And as a navigator, it was really my job to find ways to discuss this with employers. It was very simple for me to call and ask, do you support trans folks? And, you know, someone's going to give you all kinds of answers there. And so the real need of the question was, what kind of training do you offer? which providers or which case managers or which, uh, which individuals can we send our folks to in order to un- understand how to give them a good opportunity in a place that was going to be supportive of their identity and continue affirming it through the process.
0: So let's go back to the beginning a little bit and define some terms for everybody so that we know that we're speaking the same language. I find that that really is a good place to start. So can we just even start off with what is sex?
1: Sure. So sex in and of itself is a classification of essentially biology. And so when we're born, a doctor usually looks between our legs, sees what's there or is not there, and makes a decision. And that's the sex that we are assigned at birth.
0: And how is that different than gender? So gender is a combination of
1: cultural expectations that are placed on individuals and their roles. They're roles that we are expected to play and rules that we are expected to follow based on the sex that we are assigned at birth. So the example I like to give is around color. Right now, we assume boys wear the color blue and girls wear the color pink. And that's a cultural expectation when it comes to children, when it comes to boys and girls and men and women. Well, 100 years ago, those things were different. And so it was little girls who were expected to wear blue because it was considered a cooling and calming kind of color. Whereas pink is a watered-down version of red, which is bright and energetic, and that's what we wanted boys and young men to be. And so these rules and expectations, these assumptions that we place on bodies are the, are the gender piece, because there's no reason a little boy can't wear pink or green or yellow or orange. It's we as a culture, and particularly this country and this culture, that have made some decisions about what it means to be a certain gender and what rule that gender is supposed to follow.
0: And do people make certain decisions about what gender identity is for themselves? So little kids will go along, we treat them as a girl or a boy based on the sex that they present with, and at some point there develops a sense of identity around their gender. Is that something that they then choose at that time? What does that process look like for those kids?
1: What we know in terms of pediatric psychology is that a sense of identity really starts to form around the age of four, particularly in relation to gender. You start to see and recognize individuals around you as male or female, that the rules are different in terms of the application. You start to understand some of the differences between bodies. And so it's at that point, children start to ask, if not question, outright really question some of the gender and gender presentation and gender assumptions going on around them. And when it comes to transgender children, they've made a decision, which not really a decision as much as they're recognizing something in themselves, which does not seem to match current sex expectation or biological assumption. One thing we don't do is if a little boy says, I'm a boy and wants to play with trucks and roughhouse, we don't stop him and say, no, you're too young to understand what your gender could possibly be. We don't, we don't do that. If a little girl, especially if she's conforming to, I want to play with dolls and pretend to cook and wear pink, we don't tell her, no, no, you're not a little girl. We don't say that you're too young to understand your gender or your gender identity or how those things work. But so when it comes to a child being gender nonconforming or possibly transgender, we do all of a sudden we say, no, you don't you don't understand enough about yourself. We don't believe you. We don't think you're capable of making that decision. So right away we're walking in with some assumptions as a culture. We support children who are gender conforming and meet our expectations, and it can be much harder for us to support children who don't meet those expectations or assumptions.
0: And you use the word transgender, and I just want to call that out and ask for a definition of what that means. So I hear transgender, cisgender. What does that mean?
1: A cisgender person is someone whose sex assigned at birth matches their gender identity. And so many, most people are cisgender. For individuals whose gender identity does not match their sex assigned at birth, those folks may identify as transgender. And this is something that's very different from intersex. Intersex is a a completely different thing as it relates to chromosomes and some biology, but transgender and intersex are not interchangeable terms. And so there are a number of people who, at some point in their lives, understand that their gender identity does not match what is assigned to them at birth, and so they're transgender. Something we don't want to do, though, is make an assumption around a default or normality when it comes to gender identity, transgender, or cisgender status. And the reason for that is because whether or not someone might see something as normal, well, what's normal for a transgender person is there every day. So the things that they're dealing with, their life experience and being transgender is normal for them. And so it's really important that we remember cisgender and transgender are just terms. And when folks have difficulty kind of remembering, well, the transgender woman means what and transgender man means that, we'll just remove the word transgender. And that should give you a much better idea of the kind of person you're working with in that moment. And of course, non-binary identities exist gender non-conforming identities exist. Um, Something we talk about as well are two-spirit identities, and so these are folks from Indigenous communities whose sexual orientation or gender identity may not match our assumptions. And it can be really difficult for some Black, Indigenous, and communities of color to integrate some of their, their cultural understanding around gender to what is Western and white here, because they're different. And so trying to make them fit into a box can be really challenging. So even the term transgender may not be quite the right thing for a particular person or group of people.
0: And the other thing that I think gets confused in all of this is sexual orientation. I've had a lot of people say, well, what does that mean? Who, who do they pair off with? And I'm sure you have a perspective on that as well, Erin. I
1: do. Uh, so I am transgender, but I'm also a woman married to a woman. And so those two things are both simultaneously happening in my life. And that can make things a little bit more challenging, especially, again, as a woman who's married to a woman. I'm also transgender. I'm also Black. And so now we're in a position to be discussing how many different systems are in play that aren't necessarily aware of or as deeply inclusive of my varying identities as they could be.
0: And you said something when you introduced yourself earlier, which was you introduced yourself using pronouns. Can you tell me why you did that? And what is that about? People are doing that a lot now.
1: So providing an opportunity to... Engage with pronouns is really about providing an opportunity to respect an individual as they are and the way that they are presenting to you. And so by offering my pronouns, I'm politely asking for folks to use those and at the same time letting them know that if they give me pronouns, I'm going to use them too. I'm going to try and respect them. And sometimes we encounter pronouns which can be challenging or confusing, and that isn't really a moment to try and break down language as much as, well, let me use this person's name because proper nouns continue to exist. And so what we're doing is we're creating an environment of mutual respect that is politely asked and given and is really highly reciprocated. And it also provides a space to let folks know that gendered assumptions may not necessarily apply in this space. Instead, we're going to be taking people as they are and choosing to engage with them as individuals.
0: Sounds like a good rule of thumb for everybody you encounter. Yeah,
1: and it it can be challenging. It can seem like a little bit of extra work but I feel pretty confident that most folks are able to do that. We pick up new words, we pick up new languages and habits and customs all the time. And this is just another one to make sure we're we're letting folks around us know we want to respect them for who they are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, can we talk a little bit about the differentness of the experience of the transgender person in society? There's a lot of data out there around how many people are transgender in America, what they face in terms of challenges when it comes to jobs, housing, they face discrimination. I have a data point in front of me that there is about 1.4 million people in the United States who identify as transgender. But there's also been a lot of difficulty in defining what that is. And also there's been a lack of affirmingness for a lot of people um, that doesn't make it feel safe for them to even self-identify. Can you talk about some of those challenges? So
1: from very, very early ages, it's gotten, it's a little bit better. It's different now. But there are a lot of messages that come from friends, parents, and the community around us that there are gendered expectations that we're going to have to follow. And if we don't follow those, well, then you might deal with being a social outcast.
0: Erin, there's a lot of challenges with growing up transgender. And then to be a transgender adult in the society also has huge amounts of challenges associated with it when it comes to discrimination, education, employment, and housing. Please tell us a little bit about that experience, um, either as you know it or on behalf of the transgender community as you know it.
1: From the time we're very, very young, there is a lot of messaging that we start to get from friends, family, from teachers, from various types of media, from songs to television to comic books, which really start to deeply outline some of the gendered expectations that come with being a human being, at least one in this particular culture. And if you choose to engage with your own identity and your own gender identity enough, and you find that, you know, perhaps your sex assigned at birth is not correct for you, and you live your your life authentically, Well, then you're in a position in which you're being gender nonconforming. And there are a lot of folks in our community, unfortunately, who don't know how to engage with those folks respectfully. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, I'm not going to let you use the right bathroom. Other times it's it's even more aggressive in that, we don't think you're going to be a good fit for this company, and so we're not going to hire you. And so this leads to those social determinants of health, those things outside of the exam room, which affect patients inside of the exam room, which also kind of touches on that, that idea of intersectionality, in which systems are in play, which disadvantage people who are outside of what we would consider certain cultural norms or expectations. And so the idea that we, don't, we wouldn't hire a transgender person and that we could fire someone for being transgender was common until literally a couple of months ago there was just a Supreme Court ruling around it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. June of this year. And they finally made that decision. Thank you very much, Supreme Court. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, And it was it was really exciting because it it supported gender identity and sexual orientation at the same time. And so getting to see how the social determinants of health are being challenged, at least from a legal perspective, because legal equity and lived equity are different things. We're at least taking a step in a different direction as a country. We're saying we as a people, we as a group are going to choose to engage with folks honestly and authentically, and we're not going to penalize them for that.
0: We have laws
1: that say you can't be fired because of your marital status or your religion. And so these things which are so deeply connected and innate to a person's identity are not things we should be discriminating against people for. And so in addition to employment and housing. Oregon is a little bit different. We live in, a, in an interesting kind of place in the world. But there are some states that have support for the trans community baked into their legal code for the healthcare system. And so those are some of the places that the trans community is starting to move, and we're starting to actually see ourselves better reflected in those demographics.
0: You know, um, speaking of the healthcare community, I want to just share a story briefly around probably my first year in private practice. And I was growing my practice. And one of my colleagues gave me a call and said, Hey, I'm going to be retiring. And I'd like you to take care of these patients for me. And I was like, of course, absolutely delighted to do it. But wait a minute, you're an endocrinologist, and you actually have a group of endocrinologists that you are in practice with. So who are these people? Well, before you say yes, you need to know they're all transgender people. I'm like, okay, cool. But still, I, I don't understand why you're calling me, because no one else in my practice will take care of them. And so this kind of prejudice and discrimination was also happening not only in housing and education and the legal system, but also in healthcare, And that has changed so dramatically, as has the entire culture around that and the understanding of it, I remember um, giving a talk on transgender healthcare, and I had a running slideshow of portraits of people. And my daughter, who was about eight at the time, came in, and she said, so all of those people think that they're girls. And I said, no, all of those people are girls. And she said, oh, and that was it. And that's how the next generation is raised. And they have classmates that they will tell us about using they pronouns. And and everything has changed so much within this 25 years. And yet things haven't changed quite enough either. Um, there's still going on a lot of discrimination, um, fearfulness about even encountering the healthcare system. Um, there's data that shows that people will Rather than go in and get treated because they fear discrimination, they fear prejudice, they fear being maltreated, they let medical conditions go on and not be treated. And so there's still work to be done around that. I think that we've done so much. But can you talk a little bit about the experience of the transgender person in the healthcare system and how that's changed and and what you've seen from your vantage point? Um, I can
1: talk about it because I have so much personal experience with it. And not just as a professional, but as a patient. The very first couple of doctor's offices that I tried to walk into to get care as a transgender person told me no. They said, we don't serve you. One, tried to get my, he tried to pull a file and actually get some information about my employer because he wanted to call my lawyer over what I had come to see him about.
0: Yeah, the audience can't see me right now, Erin, but my mouth is just dropped open um, that you know, Here you are, a peer and colleague of mine, younger than me, I think, um, but this has still been your experience of health care um, that you've received. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm flabbergasted.
1: This is within the last 10 years. And so there has been some watershed moment that has happened in healthcare, particularly in the last five to six, and very much so on the West Coast of the United States. And the thing about it is we still see providers who do not want to support or treat trans folks. Is the, the little bit of additional information you might get from UCS, UCSF, they have a page that lays it all out. Well, that they don't feel like they can do that safely or confidently. And so we have providers who can't provide, can't offer that care. In addition to that, there are surgical interventions that a literal handful of surgeons in this country perform, at least as compared to other types of surgery that are done. The techniques are still being refined, and you still have. A lot of insurance companies that will not cover it and so for example when we're talking about employment i know a lot of transgender people who are either self-employed or moved into the tech sector so that they could work remotely they would not be seen by very many people and the amount of money that they could make could be put towards surgery so instead of saving to buy houses instead of saving to buy you know putting money into retirement we're putting it into trying to find ways to be safe and feel more confident in our bodies one of the patients that i worked with and she's given me permission to tell the tale anonymously she was she came to me because she was new to to, to the portland area she had come from the midwest she wasn't really sure what she was going to do she was just looking for care and so the first thing i got to tell her was that all of her care was covered it was it was part of a base plan she wasn't going to have to pay anything extra it was there was there was none of that was going to happen i could help her find a job With some of the organizations in town, she wanted to start working at nonprofit to help other people. And at one point during the phone call, she just got really, really quiet, and so I asked if she was still there, and she said yes. And she had fallen into thought about what her next step was going to be, because she had saved tens of thousands of dollars to cover some major surgeries for herself. Instead, she was going to buy a townhouse and fix her credit and have her own place to live for the first time in her entire life. And so these are the types of stories that are, because of where we are, because we are able to provide community resources, support, engagement, and affirmation within the healthcare system, that these folks are are, are living lives just like everyone else. Because that's really what the community is asking for. No one's asking for anything special or anything different. Only the appropriate access to care and general support from the community to make our own way like everyone else. And so these are the types of things that that really spoke to me uh, working in community health because I got to engage one-on-one with individuals like that. And there have been so many moments in which I'm I'm getting a phone call from a social worker, someone who one of the members of the community is in the ED. It's the fourth or fifth time they've seen them. I finally get a chance to talk with them. I finally get a chance to talk to them about the Medicaid plan that they happen to be on. And that you have support, and I have some providers that I can send you. And seeing that behavior, those, those high ED visits, those very expensive visits, start to fade away because we're now engaging in interventional and preemptive care with this person. They have access to community resources because there's someone who is very community resource literate who's supporting them and helping them not only become more health literate, but become more literate in how to navigate these resources that do exist for everybody. And so these are the types of things that healthcare in particular can really take a strong stance on. Being able to provide health care is really one of the biggest factors in providing economic stability for the transgender community. That and, of course, employing folks. So.
0: Well, and economic stability for the transgender community, but also what a loss when we have people who are not in the workforce in the way that they want to be or interacting in the workforce. And I just want to bring up a statistic because there is a question about well, doesn't this cost a lot of money? And why should we be paying for that? So this is from uh, William Padula, an assistant professor at John Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health. And he published a study in the Journal of General Internal Medicine looking at the cost effectiveness of insurance companies paying for transgender health care. He and his colleagues estimated that gender reassignment surgery is a one-time cost of roughly between twenty dollars and $30,000, plus the ongoing cost of hormone replacement therapy. Without transition services, the cost for a transgender person will cost $10,000 a year, which stems from the risk of depression, drug abuse, and other problems transgender people tend to face without treatment. Now, he says, and I quote, if every insurance company suddenly agreed to cover transgender care, the cost per person would be 1.6 pennies per month. As a comparison, cystic fibrosis treatment, which costs $300,000 a year, costs 5 cents a person. So even just from an economic standpoint, this one-time cost with ongoing hormone treatment Versus the cost of mental health, of housing, of lost opportunities. Um, This is something, again, as an evolving society, we need to really take a different look at. And how is it that we welcome people in and help them be, again, the the people that they want to be, know themselves to be, and can be in society. So powerful stuff to be thinking about.
1: When we talk about the workforce in general, when we talk about the ROI on having different opinions and perspectives at the table, that's well known. So as we, as organizations, start to attract more and more transgender people, particularly with work protections, we need to have those continuing discussions in, in terms of updating our plans, updating our care. Kaiser, for example, provides trans health care as part of base benefits. Anyone who has a Kaiser plan is going to be a part of that system, and so that makes not only Kaiser attractive, but it makes the, that workforce attractive as well. So there are some individuals who have unfortunately had to litigate in favor of accessing their health care, and they've been able to successfully litigate against both the health care companies and the organization providing the care, because there's just too much of of a a positive ROI on being able to provide this care. And so it's really important that all workforces take an opportunity to consider it seriously.
0: So one of the things, we, we touched on mental health. Let's talk about that for a little bit. I referenced that there is a higher prevalence of mental health, um, suicide attempts, depression, substance use and abuse. What is that all about and how do we help this community around the subject of mental health? The
1: mental health piece is always a really challenging conversation because a lot of folks come to the table with this expectation or assumption that a high rate of suicidality is indicative of inherent mental health problems or some kind of neurodivergence in transgender people. And that is really not the case. Mm -hmm.
0: It's almost if you're transgender and having difficulties with depression or suicidality, it's kind of proof that it's a disorder, that those Mm -hmm. things shouldn't be going together, rather than perhaps looking at the lived experience of a transgender person who... Can't do as well in education, gets bullied at school, gets passed over for the job and has a difficult time in society economically, causing the depression and the suicidality. So mixing those two things together inappropriate. Well, yeah, and
1: what we're looking at is really just an exacerbation of those existing things. If someone is not able to get a to get a job, if someone is not able to access health care, they're not able to access family support, all of those things drive mental health issues, suicidality, depression and substance use anyway. And so now on top of it, we have people saying, I also don't agree with your right to exist. And some people choose to engage in violence around that identity. So if you know that from the moment you wake up in your bed, you are going to see images on the television and hear them from TV that you are, you are not a person, that you are not real or that you are defective. You walk out of your home, you'll hear it from people in grocery stores. You'll hear it from people at work. And then at the end of the day, someone might punch you in the face, and that's really uncomfortable but that's part of the reality of the transgender experience in this part of the world. And so we need in many parts of the world. And so it's really important for us to discuss those things as a, an opportunity to engage with the community more authentically and responsibly. And treating them like we would any other patient community or demographic in terms of providing them with the resources that they need to live healthy, happy, stable lives, then we will automatically see things like substance use start to fade, depression start to fade, long-term suicidality start to fade because folks will feel like, oh, my engaging with my identity is not going to result in a lifetime of hardship for things that aren't really my fault because other people don't agree with me. And while they say they might not agree with me conceptually, functionally, they're not hiring me. Functionally, they're not providing me with health care. Functionally, I have no opportunity, and so that's really going to drive me towards coping behaviors and some depressive behaviors. So transition is a very, very terrifying time for most transgender people. It comes with a kind of gender euphoria in the sense that I get to embrace my identity and start moving forward with it. But the dysphoria can also become more pronounced as you start to grapple with some of the reality of being transgender, and so hiding yourself is often necessary for some people. Granted, our society is a little bit different, but when I transitioned, I actually started hormones, and I did not socially transition for over a year. So I actually medically started medically transitioning before I started socially transitioning. Because the job that I had at the time, it would things would not have gone well if I had come into work dressed comfortably and confidently, as opposed to how they'd always seen me. And Well, I I liked the person that I worked with, and I liked my boss. It just wasn't going to work. I was in a very public-facing job at the time, and I had a lot of long-term clients. So I actually left that job. It's, It's part of the reason I changed careers. I left retail management and moved into healthcare because I wanted to work for a place that would be able to respect my identity. And so the first place I went to work was a community health clinic with a known reputation for supporting the transgender community. So I went to a place where I knew I could be authentic in my identity, and I did hide away for a year. Social transition for many people involves the change of clothing, maybe the change of hair, changing legal documentation to reflect a person's identity, while the medical transition is the hormones and surgery. We usually have to wait. There can be wait times of up to three years for certain surgeries in our community. And so, the medical transition is a is a long and patient process that we have to come to terms with. Social transition is a different type of of challenging process to come to terms with because people's opinions of you change. Some folks lose family, some folks lose everything. Um, I, I had a client who struggled. He and his partner had spent many many years putting money away and investing into an intentional community. That was going to be for lesbian women. Late, 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 late in life, well over the age of 65, this person decided to move forward with transition. Well, their partner didn't want to be with a man or someone who identified as a man, and this community was not for men. And so he lost 40 years worth of work in his retirement plan, where he was going go to go to finish his life, and he had to start over. His transition cost him everything. And to his credit, when I see him, he's still smiling. He is honest about his situation but he needed to be authentic. He could no longer hide himself away.
0: It was really that sense of internal coherence that was just important enough to make that kind of a life change for himself. That's, that's an amazing story of identity right there. And,
1: you know, it's kind of like a puzzle piece fit. Other folks who are cisgender may not have ever really grappled with their gender identity deeply enough to figure out which pieces of the puzzle fit to really make them feel that way. The transgender community does this all the time. In many cases, we started, we didn't know that everybody else wasn't doing it too. And then we continue with it because our place in society can be so precarious in some ways. And so we continue to, to grapple with that information. And so once you find those puzzle pieces and they fit, well, no, this is this is it. This is who I am. And I understand that I'm going to lose some things. I'll lose friends. I'll lose family. I can lose my job. Transgender people can have their children taken away from them and not get visitation. And so these are all the things that I might lose because I'm choosing to live authentically. And so some people do not actually move forward with transition. There are a small, small number of people who, once they have transitioned, are still not confident. They still don't find the faith in themselves or the support from the community or the engagement they need. And so they do be transition less than 1% of us, but there are so many of us who are looking for an opportunity to be who we are. And so that's what that social and societal transition is going to be about. And it can be challenging. More than one trans person I know in the state of Oregon has had to call a senator in support of getting their passport changed, because that's one of the things your senator can do for you if you're having trouble with the passport off. And they've had to make calls, personal calls on behalf of individuals to push their passports through, because you, know, you need to have something in which your name and your gender identity match your presentation because that's part of the employment issue, part of the healthcare access issue, it's part of the housing issue. Some people just don't understand or don't feel a transgender person will will fit, quote unquote, in their community or their building. And so it's really, really challenging for the transgender community to figure out not only what does transition look like, because not every transgender person has a social or medical transition. Most have at least a social but some people don't. And it it really isn't our job as healthcare providers or anyone's job to tell them how to transition, only to provide them with the space and resources that they need in order to do that in a way that feels good for them and affirming for them.
0: So you mentioned that there is a waiting list a lot of times in order to have surgery. Is that just because of lack of availability of surgeons who can actually do these procedures? Or is there actually a process that a check-the-box that people have to go through in order to transition. What I'm asking is, does the medical system make them wait while we make sure that all the boxes are checked, or is it I just have to stand in line because there's just not enough surgeons, so there's or there's both? a
1: combination of the two. First and foremost, there is a process outlined by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health around how to access health care as a transgender person. And so part of getting any sort of surgical intervention is a mental health evaluation. So you have to have a mental health evaluation once to have a surgery that would be above the waist. You have to have two different mental health evaluation letters from two different mental health providers for things you want below the waist. And so there's no asking on Monday for surgery and getting it on Friday. That doesn't exist, and that's a myth in in the community. And so what's actually happening is folks have to walk a very fine line with the mental health provider to talk about how dysphoria is, significantly impacting their life, but that they are still able enough to make a sound medical decision for themselves. So this is a tightrope, and this is very different from anyone else. If you break your arm, if you have cancer, no one makes you get a mental health evaluation before we do surgery on you. But for the trans community, it's happening not only once, but twice. And even with youth, it's a requirement. So before anyone under the age of 18 accesses any kind of hormonal therapy, a mental health evaluation has to be completed by a, a pediatric specialist mental health provider who can work with the transgender community.
0: One of my patients was really mad about that. Um she she wanted to have um, a surgery above the waist or top surgery and and was sent for a mental health evaluation and she said, "You know, if I were a cisgender woman, I could go out and have, you know, breast enhancement surgery." tomorrow, just like you talked about. And yet, there's this whole other bar that you have to pass. And I loved your analogy of the tightrope, because I think that it it must be difficult at times to describe your distress um, at my gender identity does not match the body I'm living in. Therefore, I qualify for surgery, or I want to have it. And yet, I'm not so distressed that I don't understand what I'm asking for and what this will mean. So um, great example. Yeah,
1: and- And the the preparation process also is not simple. For surgeries below the waist or bottom surgery, particularly for transgender women, you're looking at a very lengthy electrolysis process. And for folks who don't know what that is, that is a blunt probe that is inserted into uh, the pore around a hair follicle, and they run old-school ACDC wall current through that pore to kill the hair. It doesn't always work on the first touch, so some hairs have to be touched two or three times. And so that's 50, 60, 70, 80 hours for some people of time in a chair of getting electrolysis all throughout their groin region in order to provide the space necessary to do the vaginoplasty so the skin can be used appropriately. And so, this, again, this idea that someone's asking for surgery on Monday and getting it on Friday or that there are 8- or 9-year-olds who are full of hormones or getting surgery, that's a myth. And it's really concerning because it stands in the way of our young people in community actually getting the affirmation they need around social transition, so hair and clothing and legal transition, so getting their documents updated and supporting them in the education environment and making sure that they have peers. And so if we, are, if we are not engaging with these things honestly, then we end up in a situation where someone has gone through a quote unquote wrong puberty and now is no longer logically sports. Because that's a really complicated conversation right now. The puberty that you have gone through has affected your body so deeply, we don't believe you can participate in sports equitably anymore. And so if we're not going to provide people space to live their life fully, well, then we need to support them authentically from the start. And so making sure that those myths are are broken down and busted is really important. Uh, One around the social contagion theory still exists. It's been repackaged. Back in the 50s, if someone was gay or lesbian, and suddenly it seemed like there were more gay and lesbian people around them. The idea was that they had spookily infected people (laughs) with gayness, and it's not real. It's people who are learning about one another, are having space to be authentic in their identity, and choosing to build community around it. And so now they call it rapid onset gender dysphoria instead of the social contagion theory. But it, it's just another repackaging that the idea of being transgender is a fad or that it is a trend. And it's not. There are more young people exploring their gender in all kinds of ways because we as a society are making room for that. We're saying that boys and girls, are these ideas, these gender roles are not as rigid as you made them out to be. People can wear whatever color they want. Drive a tractor if you want to. I'm a girl and I do. And so what are we able to do as a a culture to create more space for people to explore authentically? And that's really what a lot of young people are doing. Not as many as people think are are transgender. They're just choosing to be gender nonconforming in some way. But we want to make sure that the transgender youth that are having to deal with gender dysphoria are being dealt with appropriately from a social and medical standpoint so that we can support their identity and really preempt all of that. The, the suicidality and the depression and the substance use and create a society where they don't have to lose their family or their friends or access to education simply for being who they are. Because so that doesn't happen to cisgender people.
0: Do people change their mind? Do they think, you know what, this is the answer. I have not felt at home in this body. I think that maybe I am a man in a woman's body. I'm going to explore that either as a child, an adolescent, or an adult, How often do people explore that, start transitioning, and then decide, you know what, I was wrong? Does that happen? It
1: does. So as I said, more young people are just exploring their gender in and of itself. We as a society are making more room for that. So, We do have some children and adolescents who make some of those decisions. And that's part of where the existing medical infrastructure around supporting the trans community comes into play. We want to support your identity and give you an opportunity to support it. So perhaps we put you on a pubertal delaying agent for a while. Those have been in use since the mid-80s. Um, I'm aware of trials and patients, actually, who went to OHSU in the mid-80s for it. So we know what happens when we're treating folks who have early-onset puberty. and So we, we know what it's like for someone to be on it for many, many years. And so it's really giving a young person an opportunity to not go through a puberty that's going to cause them that psychological stress and damage. And there are adults who, after choosing to move forward or transition, like you said, you know, this was not the right direction for me. There are a lot of individuals who are assigned female at birth. I wouldn't say a lot, but in in the community of folks who detransition, there are a number of people who were assigned female at birth. They move into a masculine space. Perhaps they, they start hormones or something along those lines, and they realize this isn't for me. I was trying to perhaps escape certain social conditioning or certain societal conditioning, and I'm not actually transgender. And so what happens in that moment is we say, okay, you stop taking hormones, you socially transition however you feel you, you need to, and you continue to live your life because that's the option. The option we want is for everyone to be authentic and to have an opportunity to be authentic in their identity. And so the medical community, WPATH, has created this infrastructure to try and preserve that while also preserving a space for people to explore and figure out who they really are. And we as a culture just need to continue to be supportive of transgender people. I will say that the rate of detransition, like I said, is less than 1%. The absolutely overarching, complete and total overwhelming majority of us are very, very happy with the decision that we made because we do feel like we are who we are and we do not de-transition.
0: So you just mentioned something about continuing to sort, support people no matter where they're at. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about being an ally. What does that mean in context to transgender people that we might know? So or don't I'm one know?
1: of those folks who, is a good word, accomplice is a better word. Um, and so it's choosing to not just be in support, but choosing to actively participate in the betterment and furtherment and inclusivity of a particular community or purpose or mission. And so being a transgender ally is someone who is going to be asking their bosses, do we cover this? It's going to be someone who chooses to say, I want to engage with the trans community. I'm going to read some books. I'm going to go read some articles. I'm going to go follow some Twitter. It's someone who, when they are in a space and they realize we have not talked at all about the transgender community and there are some decisions here which might affect them, will slow a conversation down and say, we need to be inclusive of this community because it affects them. And someone who can look around a room and say, you know, we're having a conversation about transgender people. Nobody here is transgender. Perhaps we need to change the, the, the circumstances of this conversation. Um, and so the, the, the idea of nothing about us without us is something that an accomplice is going to take to heart because we want to make sure we're doing what the community is asking for and not what we think is best for them. And so that's one of the things that makes the difference between just a regular person or a passive bystander and an active ally or an accomplice, is where are we in this? Where is the community? Where am I in this versus the community? And what am I doing to be truly engaged with the advancement of inclusivity, support, and constant engagement with the community? Because that's really what's necessary. Just like we would engage with any other community, any other demographic, and it's really important that we learn how to do that at every opportunity because, as I mentioned earlier, that idea of intersectionality, not so much in the idea that there are a series of stacked identities, but there are a number of systems in play that are affecting different people who aren't even at the table. Like The systems are so effective We've got people who aren't at the table when we're deciding on their behalf instead of with. So finding some ways to reach those places consistently, and understanding you'll make mistakes and understanding it's a new way of thinking and a new way of doing is really important. But that's what an accomplice does.
0: So making mistakes, I think that people feel nervous either about misgendering someone, using the wrong pronouns, etc. What do we do when that happens, when we're in that situation um, how big a faux pas is it? How do I get past One that? One thing in the that moment? is really
1: important to remember is that the perfect cannot be the enemy of the good. And so, if you if you're not used to doing this, if this is something new for you, you're going to have to practice. If you've got a pet, talk to your goldfish. Use someone's pronouns correctly. Find an opportunity to do that as often as possible. When you make a mistake, just acknowledge they're going to happen. There's no way to go through this and not make mistakes. I'm a member of the community, and I have made mistakes. And what happens is you acknowledge, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry, I used the wrong name, I'm going to use the correct name, and go on about your day. The more time you spend talking about it, there's this phenomenon that happens and someone wants to kind of credential themselves or or prove that they're an ally. they'll, They'll start to say, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I give money to the ACLU. I totally watch Pose. I love RuPaul's Drag race. I think trans folks are awesome. Like, none of that is necessary. And so instead... of say sorry. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, right. And so what, what what's necessary is, oh my gosh, Bruce, I'm sorry I used the wrong name for you. Uh, I'm going to use Bruce moving forward and, and then do that. Just keep on going. And in terms of it being a faux pas, it isn't really... It's not a major faux pas until it becomes a repeated an intentional mistake. So if you're not putting in the work to change the way you're speaking, well then whether or not it's a mistake, it's going to be perceived as repeated and intentional because you're not doing the work. If someone corrects you, go with that. If you call someone Jane and she says, my name is Joan, you would stop and say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And you would use the correct name going forward. For most of the community, it's not a challenge until it's become repeated and it's consistent. And something to remember is that while it might be your first time making this mistake with this person, you are not the first person to have made mistakes with them. And so it's really important to remember the things outside of a particular individual experience with someone that they're bringing into the situation. There could be a whole history of things. Maybe they've lost family and friends. If you're a provider, they might have just been in your lobby and been called back by the wrong name. You can always be the place in which the service is recovered. It can always start getting better with you. If you choose to make that your priority, if you choose to be that kind of active ally, you're going to be nervous because it's new. That totally makes sense. And, and there's a quote from a television show, a cartoon called Adventure Time, where you got to kind of suck at something before you can be kind of good at it. And so you will make mistakes. And remember, your goldfish doesn't care what mistakes you make. Have those conversations, get an opportunity to practice, hold yourself accountable, and that's really the thing that's going to change your behavior.
0: When we think about how things have changed in healthcare and accessing healthcare, finding someone who is quote unquote trans friendly, I know has been very important to people. And yet they will also encounter systems that say, Well, we're, we're all that way. We're all LGBTQ friendly and we all have training. Is that true? Are the expectations that we should all be good at delivering this kind of care and that If the medical system doesn't want to differentiate, does that translate into the experience for the transgender person? I
1: think one of the easiest allegories around that is the understanding that not every marginalized or minority community requires the same levels or types of intervention in order to be supported. And so when you say, well, we, we don't see color or we support everyone, we do a training. Well, did that training happen once? Did everyone check a box two years ago and then go home? Because if so, that shows that you haven't actually integrated the ideas necessary to really change your organization. What you've done is you've checked a box so that you can pat yourself on the back and feel good and feel like you're not doing something incorrect when you're still letting some gaps exist because times have changed, if only in those couple of years. Trying to find trans-friendly providers is really challenging because there are folks who are, again, nervous or afraid. Or they feel that it is a simple or easy type of thing. It's not, it's like any other type of medicine. You're picking up some new information. And there are a lot of spaces in which it is available. And so the idea that, well, the information at University of California, San Francisco about supporting the trans community is going to be the same as the information you'll get from the ACLU or from Fenway Health about working with a gay man, they're not the same thing. They're different. And the reason why the community is often put together is for reasons like what happened with the Supreme Court. We are often put together. And going all the way back to Stonewall and before that, the Compton Cafeteria riots in California, the community has always been a larger group. But that doesn't mean we don't recognize the individual and unique experiences that happen to all of the identities under that umbrella or under the rainbow.
0: Yeah, because I did start my career taking care of transgender patients, I became part of the gender identity clinic, which meant I got more referrals, which meant I got more experience and I got more knowledge. And so it does build on itself as its own little pocket of things that people know. And just to validate, Erin, your experience as well, and people would come to me at the very beginning of wanting to start that medical journey they were terrified, they were scared, they were nervous, they hadn't met me yet, they hadn't interacted with the medical system around this. It's a high anxiety time for so many people. And then I would be nervous. And am I doing the right thing? Am I keeping up with everything? Um, What's happening legally, socially, medically around all of this? So I think that there is a argument to be made that you do want to find that person who really gets this and at least is open to a further conversation. One of the things that I've heard people complain about is, I don't want to have to be your educator about this. I'm going to find someone who already knows because my job is already of weighty things enough. One
1: the community does, like you said, is, is we talk. We tell each other who is doing the work and who's good at doing the work and who's willing to fight with their system to make sure we get what we need. And so... And and the world is different now. When someone called me, I could say, yeah, I have providers who are affirming and supportive. We can walk you through your entire transition, and it's going to be covered. It's not that way everywhere. Where I came from in the southeast was not like that at all. And so the community had to rely on each other to talk about how to find someone like you, Deb, to make sure we were going to get competent care and we weren't going to be misgendered. We weren't going to be disrespected or at the very least, if those other two things were going to happen, we were still going to get competent care and someone would actually write the prescriptions that we need. And it's challenging to, to be the educator for the provider. So at one point, I was, I was on a Medicaid system, and they sent me to a particular clinic, and the provider that I was supposed to see that day happened to be out, and so I was scheduled with another random provider. I go into the room, sitting and waiting, Well, I explain to this person that I'm transgender, I need a doctor's note that says I am in the process of moving through transition so I can get my birth certificate changed. Well, this person grabbed a chair, flipped it around backwards, and sat in front of me and said, Oh, well, that's convenient. I'm the transgender specialist here at the clinic. Having tried to make the appointment with someone who knew what they were doing, they had not scheduled me with the right person to start. Okay, well, divine providence... (laughs) we are now with the right provider. I spent two hours in that appointment and he canceled people behind me because I was educating him on how to provide our care. It was very clear that I knew more about what I needed in terms of differences between injectable versus pills, understanding having some questions, well, do you serve adolescents? Can I talk to people and send them here? Do you know what Lupron is? And so the moment it was clear that I had this level of knowledge, He literally sent his MA out to cancel appointments behind me so that he could spend time talking to me, and I 100% educated him about the trans experience, about active medical care, resources that he could look for, the things that I needed, things that he could expect to be moving forward, so I gave him effectively two-hour training, and he was the specialist working with the Medicaid population, which is heavily, our community is heavily a part of the Medicaid population. And I, I knew that the universe put me there for a reason, but oh my goodness, was I not prepared for that. It was really unsettling, that that inherent power dynamic when you walk into a medical office, the doctor knows things and you're supposed to listen and be active participant in your care. And no, I'm going to tell this human being what to do.
0: And well, on on behalf of the transgender community and the medical community, thank you for investing your two hours in that person's education. That was really meaningful. And so you had someone in front of you who was so willing to learn but yet not willing enough to actually educate themselves on their own time. So more has to be done around that, I think, even just in the whole education system itself. That's pretty profound, actually. One of the
1: things that's going to be important, like you said earlier, is just demystifying the care. You had to learn how to do it. There are resources available everywhere. And the opportunity to sit down and engage with it a little bit is there. Within our system, we have a physician need. If you want to support the trans community and start offering hormones, she will explain to you how to do it, give you all of the resources, provide you with uh, the generalized information, and she'll be a point of contact if you have questions. And that's it. All she needs is someone who's willing to say they want to do it and invest a little bit of time in it and they'll be able to make a huge difference in their medical office.
0: One of the things that I found was in our own medical record, we had a little bit of difficulty being able to understand the concept of transgender when it came to documentation of certain things. For instance, there wasn't any category or field as far as transgender. We didn't use the preferred name um, field that existed, but we really didn't pay a lot of attention to it until we started really, again, thinking about how do we care for transgender patients. And then I remember the first time I had someone in and he needed to have a pap smear. And my medical assistant was like, oh, totally cool and, and uh, brought him into the room for the exam. And uh, it was an annual exam and said, and, and oh, no, by the way, Dr. Deb was going to do a pap smear today. And of course, you know, like anyone, when you spring it on them, their eyes get big and got that done. But he said later how much it meant to him that it was just matter of fact. Oh, here's what we're going to do because it needs to be done, even though it was a quote unquote male physical. Well, that came into play later when I got a call from the lab. And Dr. Friesen, you you sent the wrong specimen down because it, it has a male name and a male designation on it, but it's a pap smear. And I'm like, and those two things are not inconsistent. And so now we need to think about um, how we deliver care How we track things for people. Um, You know, if you still have a prostate, we need to be thinking of things. If you now have breasts because you're on estrogen, we need to think of things differently. And sometimes we will actually, again, have registries where we can understand and follow people through time. And as I talk to some of my colleagues and the transgender community, they... Registry? I don't want to be on a registry. What if things change for us in the future? What if someone actually has access to that registry and uses it to discriminate against me? Not to care for me and to make sure I'm getting all the care that I need, but actually uses that against me. So still a lot of fear, even as we're trying to do yeah, the right um, thing. I've
1: definitely had a lot of conversations, and I do some specific training around supporting folks using medical record systems, because they were all built on a binary and at this point, anything in support of the trans community is effectively like a band-aid or a patch that they're sticking on the top of it. And when we ask about making some fundamental changes around how the sex marker works, they'll tell us, well, you're asking us to pull the bottom bricks out of a Lego building. You know, they, they, it, all of these systems were so deeply built on a binary. And... I've definitely had some moments in which it was not able to identify me correctly. I have definitely been sitting in a dentist's chair at one point at Kaiser, and since our systems are integrated, was asked when I had my last cap smear. That's not a thing I need. And there I was, having (laughs) to have a conversation with a dentist about why I was going to tell him no and why they were not going to get credit on that marker. Because he didn't, he didn't understand, and he was just doing his job. Because the, the health maintenance system tells you th- this is what needs to happen. This F gender marker means these types of things have to occur, and so it's 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 challenging. And then there's a, another layer because after having a vaginoplasty, bottom surgery for a transgender woman, they're still a prostate, and so if you're doing a vault test, you've got to know what you're going to find in there because there's still gonna be a prostate there and now it's gonna be on the anterior wall of what is now the vagina. And so understanding that 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 level, there is some work that goes into it and our systems are not really able to do that very well. Part of the reason we built the Gender Pathways Clinic was to make sure people were getting those regular health maintenance checks. The system was not triggering them correctly. And so once you get your gender marker, your legal information changed, the system will continue to not trigger things correctly. And so we've had to build build modules. There are SOGI, so sexual orientation and gender identity modules, which are getting better at recording names that people actually use because we're getting away from using the term preferred name, even though the systems still kind of have that hard-coded. And what is the patient's actual organ inventory? And the reason we're moving in that direction is because organ inventories are going to be much cleaner data in and of themselves. There are cisgender women, so women who were assigned female at birth and identify as women, who have had hysterectomy, and they're still being asked about pap smears and not tests. And so these types of things continue to occur. So that organ inventory is really going to be better for everybody, and that high tide will raise all shit.
0: In yeah, terms of absolutely.
1: how people are concerned about being tracked in our system. As a community health worker, as a navigator, I've had more than a handful of people move away from the Pacific Northwest. And we had to have a very serious conversation with our medical records department about how we could scrub their medical record because they were moving to places that were known to be non-supportive and places where they would definitely face discrimination. I got to learn a lot about what that actually takes For a patient's health record, particularly if they've been seen for a decade. It's not an easy process, but while a cisgender person could just pick up their medical records and have them transferred, we have to be mindful of things like that. And so the stability that a person might have been able to find around accessing health care here, well, now they're going somewhere where that's not going to happen, and they have to be much more furtive with their identity and their medical
0: Yeah, I didn't even think about that aspect of moving your medical record and wanting to have confidentiality around that when you find a new provider. It doesn't cross our experience um, if you're not living that specific part of things. So thank you for providing that insight. All right, Erin, what is the advice? What's the call to action around, again, helping being an ally, being a person in the the life that we find ourselves in at this point in time, being our authentic selves and expressing our own gender identity. I feel
1: like the call to action is really simple. Try with a capital T because that's the thing that's really important. It's not that you believe you're going to get it right right away or that you're going to understand it right away or that the conversations you have with yourself as you figure out how do the puzzle pieces around your own gender fit for you there are women who have no interest in wearing skirts at all. Well, they are still women. They are still in their gender identity, and the way they choose to express that, their gender expression could be considered gender non-conforming, but pants have been around for a long time. (laughs) So at what point did they become gender conforming? You know, the same thing happened with high heels. Men used to wear them. Now they don't. And so understanding what exploration looks like for you is going to be really important and that you try. Give it a shot. Think about the things that actually work for you, the things that make sense to you about gender roles and the way our culture has constructed them and which ones don't. And then figure out what your front lines are around being an ally or an accomplice. Everyone has front lines. And we, ha- we have a tendency to think about, well, protest has always got to be in the street. It's got to be loud. It's got to be every- in, in your face and undeniable. And there's different ways of doing that. And again, if you're sitting in an organization which has not had a conversation about offering trans health care, the time is now. If you're sitting in an organization that has not ever tried to engage with the transgender community to take recommendations on improving your system in their favor, now's the time. And when you do that, you know, the call to action is going to be that try with a capital T. If you have to have that listening session, walk in telling those individuals you're going to implement 51% of their recommended change. Don't pick just one or two the cheapest and the easiest one and try and implement those and make sure you've got all your tracking. No, you need to be willing to do more to show that you're actually engaged with the community and invested in it because that's going to get that piece of investment back from them in you. And so if you want that, you got to try. And, you know, the ally button, it only lasts for a day. The shine fades and then it disappears and you've got to start over. Because the thing that matters most in any given moment is not what you used to do or what you give to, you know, the ACLU every every month or something like that. What matters is how you respond to this situation with this person right here, right now. And so if right here, right now, you're not able to take a step back, hang on to your own biases, get those out of the way, and then engage with this person authentically, well, then you're not really trying, definitely not with that capital P. So it's an opportunity to just become more mindful because that's where it starts. We talk about awareness campaigns being a start. Great. Let's move past those awareness campaigns. Let's get into some action. Let's start trying to do things differently because it's, these systems around us were not created with a lot of different demographics in mind. They just weren't. Those weren't the people at the table building new systems. And So now when we think about different systems, well, let's not try and send everyone to a broken table that hasn't worked for everybody. Let's build a new table. And when we build that new table, if we're trying, well, then we're going to be engaging with the community authentically. We're going to be asking for their input. We're going to be putting it into action. And we're going to be thinking about them as we make our decisions.
0: I love that. Thank you. Try with a capital T is going to be my mantra. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate this conversation, your openness, your transparency, your wealth of knowledge. Um, You are truly an accomplice. And I appreciate that as well. And on behalf of all the patients that you help navigate with, the work that you do on behalf of patients is so meaningful to me. I think back to, again, when I started my practice and working with that community, what it would have meant to have a navigator like you, truly helping to show the way, walking with them along the way. And um, you are changing the world and I really, really appreciate that. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish that I would have? Are there any um, points that you'd like to make that we There's didn't really go into?
1: Need to reiterate that point that when, when you find yourself able to think about gender identity and sexual orientation, you've got that moment to step back, transfer that to some other demographics and some other communities, thinking about the senior community, the disability community, other communities of color. Where else can you find the strength in yourself to really look at some of those gaps? and see them as opportunities for improvement and not opportunities to be afraid and therefore to put it off. Because like I said before, I have the fact that I am black and transgender and a woman married to a woman happening all at the same time. So if someone wants to help me and they only help the transgender part of me, well, there's two other major parts of my identity that are being addressed. And so, are we, are we going to play whack-a-mole? That's not ideal. It's <laughs> not when we could really step back and rebuild some of these tables in a different way. Um, aside from that, it would just be the uh, echoing your, your thoughts around having community health workers embedded in systems. We're seeing more states seriously have those conversations. It helps not only with overall ED visits. You're really reducing the overall need for acute healthcare interventions when you're providing support. And it's really just helping people access existing community resources. It's not a big list. And so if you can find folks who are very literate in those systems and and understand all of those networks, they're going to benefit so, so many different people, and they are going to very, very much help your bottom line. And in a very clear kind of way. And so it's important to remember that, well, if we're not going to be playing whack-a-mole, what can we do to really challenge the system? What can we do to really disrupt the systems that we currently have in play and build them to be better and more inclusive?
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Aaron, so much. I really appreciate this conversation.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate the time, and I'm glad you've had me, and I love talking with you, Deb. It's so fun.
0: Thanks to my guests for joining me today, and thank you for listening to the Health Views Podcast with me, Deb Friesen. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and we'll share another episode of health views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.